I'm very grateful for what God has in store for us in this fifth chapter of the book of Exodus this morning. Just a brief overview of what we'll be looking at in verses 1 through 5. The real confrontation here is over who do these two million Hebrew slaves really belong to. And we will also see here the importance of listening carefully to God's word and sharing it accurately and carefully to others. In response, in verses 6 through 14, we're going to see Pharaoh, and he will make a demand for authority over these slaves. How does he do that? Does he have the right to do so? And how does his response impact the Hebrew people? And then in verses 15 through 23, we're going to look at the people, the Hebrew slaves, and we're going to see how they respond to such great pressure that is heaped upon them. And then, in the midst of all this, we're going to try to figure out what does that have to do with us in 2023 here in Wichita, Kansas? Let's open with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword and pierces even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, we also are so grateful that, that you are omnipotent, you are omniscient, and you are omnipresent. And as we worship you here this morning, we know that you have been worshipped uh, across the globe by many and will be yet today, Lord. We thank you for the brothers and sisters of Christ. We, we thank you, Lord, for your word that anchors us together. Uh, Lord, uh, there's so much confusion, so many lies, misinformation, we call it. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would hold us fast to your truth. Your word is truth. And we thank you for that. Please speak this morning, Father. Please speak over my inadequacies. And uh, I pray that your spirit would, would penetrate our hearts with the message that you want us to hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. In Exodus, Yahweh, the living God, appears to an obscure non-participant in the life of the Hebrew people. It's a man by the name of Moses. We've gone through four chapters. We've been studying him. He's not at this moment a rising star in leadership among the Hebrew people. The people actually have no confidence in this man. In actual fact, Moses is a short-lived wannabe rescuer. He stepped up to lead for a very brief moment about 40 years before what we read about this morning. But that was a complete disaster. Moses ran for his life to escape from the Egyptian government. And at that point he was also despised by his very own people. 1,500 years later, Stephen gives this account of Moses as he stood before his accusers preparing to be stoned. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Beginning with verse 22, we'll see how Stephen described this. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. Then he drew near to observe, and the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Forty years, forty years after that, Yahweh the living God met Moses as he led sheep on the backside of an obscure mountain in an area called Horeb. And he appeared, as Stephen said, in the form of a flaming bush, and it would not be consumed. And he spoke from that bush to this little known shepherd, calling him by name. And then he revealed himself to that man and gave him instruction that he should go to Egypt and lead his people out of the harsh slavery they had suffered for centuries in Egypt. Now things have come a long way to get to this Moses-Pharaoh confrontation that we will face this morning in Exodus chapter 5. Look at Exodus chapter 4 as we gain some momentum to come into the scriptures this morning. Exodus chapter 4 verse 28. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and they gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Then Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoke to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Exodus 4 ends on a high note. We see the obedience, the obedience of Moses and Aaron. Then we see the affirmation from the Jewish people. And there's a unity suddenly between Moses and Aaron and the people. And it culminates at the end of that chapter with them worshiping Yahweh. All of the leaders of Israel worshiping together. What a great start for the Exodus mission. This was going to go smoother than Moses had feared. Smoother than God had told him it was going to go. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Question here is, whose people are these? And 
I want to look at the first part about this with the idea that messing with the message is not a good idea. Before we examine the beginning of this confrontation, let's go back and see what Yahweh specifically told Moses to say to Pharaoh. And he didn't say to Moses, uh, tell Pharaoh something along this line, or give it your best shot, Moses, and, and I'll be with you. This is what he said in Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to back up to 15 a little bit, and we're going to see what God told him to say. Exodus 3 verse 15. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you, and this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together, and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what he's supposed to tell the elders. Verse 18. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Again, look at verse 18. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Is that what Moses said to Pharaoh? No, it's not. Do you think that was a problem? Some of you may not. Some of you, like myself, hadn't really paid close attention to this as we read. But it is absolutely crucial. That is why, for myself, after hearing the gospel several years ago, spelled out clearly and thoroughly using the scriptures, I realized I needed to study and memorize those scriptures so that I could give a biblical explanation of the gospel. Not simply in an emotional appeal, nor a shoot-from-the-hip generalization. The desperately needed gospel message should be shared with the Word of God who gave that gospel. It is why when several of us review memory verses during the week, we attempt to recite them as accurately as possible, rather than simply a general sense of the verse. I have found that the more general I am in my review of the Word of God, the more I tend to add or subtract or compromise or conform the Word of God to say what I wanted to say or perhaps will fit in better at that moment. But 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of God. I don't want to be ashamed because I don't know Scripture regarding the Gospel or by misapplying or misstating what God has said. Think back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? Do we know what God has said? Can we share 
what God has said accurately as His ambassadors? When we speak to a co-worker or a family member, a neighbor over a cup of coffee, a student on the campus, a waitress at the place we like to eat, a new acquaintance on the street, or a customer we meet at the grocery store, will we share the good news of salvation as God has disclosed in His Word? It's very important. In the case of Moses, he would have been far better off introducing himself to the king of Egypt by saying exactly what God had told him to say. One commentator explained it. He said, the Lord commanded a corporate approach. Here's a side. We see there, Yahweh's first instruction had been to bring the elders along at this meeting. We don't see any mention of the elders at that meeting. He goes on to say, couched in understandable terminology. Both Phil and I have presented the idea that the name Yahweh was not even used with much understanding among the Jewish people at this time. The name Yahweh may have been quite foreign to Pharaoh. This uh, writer goes on to say, making a moderate and limited request in courteous terms. But Moses adopted an authoritarian approach, alienating Pharaoh with incomprehensible talk and laying down an absolute demand. When we sit loose to the Word of God in matters small or great, when we subtract what it does say and contribute what it does not, we doom ourselves to reap failure and disappointment. Here is how Pharaoh responded. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. The main point Pharaoh is making here is these people belong to me. I own them. I am their God. It is absurd to think you could come in and make a ridiculous demand and threaten my authority. Who is the Lord? That will be a question that will haunt Pharaoh through ten supernatural plagues which will tear his kingdom apart and rip those Hebrew slaves right out of his hand. Now some commentators believe that this quote from Pharaoh was not an honest question but a rhetorical one asked with sneering sarcasm. I tend to think it was asked in ignorance. Pharaoh may honestly not have known the name Yahweh but nevertheless Pharaoh's answer shows that he does not intend to submit to their request or to their God. Quite soon, as I, as I think Phil also indicated last week, Pharaoh's question will be answered. The coming plagues will show beyond a shadow of a doubt who Yahweh is. That statement that you may know that I am the Lord, that will echo through Exodus in chapter 7 verse 5, verse 17, chapter 8 verse 22, chapter 9 verse 14, verse 29, in chapter 11, verse 7, Pharaoh will not have simply a limited intellectual knowledge. This knowledge he will have will cause him to buckle under the power of God. He will realize that he has defied the living creator Yahweh. He will know who is the Lord. Now, who is the Lord? That is a quote 
that could have come right off the streets of downtown or the local university. Even more, who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? It is man's common denial. It is a heart just like Pharaoh. I don't know your God, Jesus, and I don't want to obey His voice. Men and women have always had the same heart toward God. We don't want to have a Lord. We don't want a master. We want freedom. We want autonomy, independence. We want to sing, I did it my way. This response by Pharaoh is exactly what Yahweh had said would happen. You see, after he told Moses precisely what to say in Exodus 3.18, Yahweh confirms, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. You see, Moses actually had an advantage in this encounter. He had been told his opponent's next move. So how do Moses and Aaron respond to this in-your-face rejection from Moses? Verse 3, So they said, The God of, Hebrew, of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Now after such a scathing rebuke from Pharaoh, you wonder if Moses didn't stop and think, what was I thinking? Scrap those ideas of mine. I've got to get back to what God had told me. You see, the second time, Moses is much more accurate, accurate and to the script Yahweh had given. He presents two God-given points, and then he adds his own warning here. First, the authority they are under. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. And secondly, the request. And he begins with please. Now, that is a Hebrew word, na, which is a Hebrew word that introduces a polite request rather than a demand. It is a completely different opening statement than Moses first tried. Please, he said, let us go three days into the desert to sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, I think many of you would look at that as, as I would, and you'd think, that's kind of an outrageous request for a group of slaves. But there is actually an ancient Egyptian manuscript dating from around 1300 B.C., now on exhibit in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. It records that occasionally slaves in Egypt were granted time to go and worship their God. A limestone table from that same time period lists slaves' names and their reasons for missing work, one being as sacrificed to the God. This tells us that at least at this particular time in history, Pharaohs did grant slaves time off for worship and sacrifice, just as Moses should have originally requested. Does this question come to your mind though? Was, was this three-day trip request a deception on the part of God? No, it wasn't. First of all, Yahweh knew Pharaoh's response would be absolutely no. There was no possibility from God's sovereign perspective that Pharaoh might hedge on this and show mercy. God speaks in Isaiah chapter 46. He says, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning 
And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God knew and controlled what would happen. Pharaoh's answer was known by God before it ever even left his lips. Secondly, this demonstrates, and this was God's intention, that Pharaoh's heart is already hard. The Israelite slaves were his. He is not about to recognize any other authority over them or over him. Unfortunately, the third point Moses made was not in God's original script from Exodus 3.18. Moses adds his own dire warning that Scripture does not record Yahweh issuing. Perhaps the closest statement that my, Moses that, excuse me, the closest statement that Yahweh made may have been in Exodus 4, chapter 22. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. But still, that is not what Moses said to Pharaoh, even in his second attempt with the king. A commentator by the name of Fretheim states, Later, when the damage had been done, from verse 1, Moses said what he had originally been told, verse 3. But this only served to compound his error. At first he replaced the Lord's words with his own, then he adds his own words to the Lord's. I caution and I warn and I encourage you, memorize, study. I know some of you feel like I don't have that gift. I don't think I have that gift. I have to, to review this stuff constantly. But if we're going to share the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, that is the only hope for the world, we want to get it right. We want to speak of it as God has presented it in His Word. Study the Word to show yourself approved. Let's go to verse 4. And then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. Pharaoh's reaction to the message leads us to the Hebrew word for hard labor. It's sebalah, and it appears eight times in Exodus 1 through 6. And the word for work, ma'azeh, appears another three times in chapter 5 alone. This repeated idea of hard labor gives the picture that the Jewish slaves were immersed in exhausted work from dawn till dusk. Hard labor was their life. Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh, it ends exactly as Yahweh said it would. If Moses had followed Yahweh's instructions precisely the first time, do I think things would have turned out differently? No. I don't. God knew exactly what direction Moses would go. He knew every word that would be uttered, and he always does. He knew how far Moses would ad-lib, as well as when he would obey. He knows that about you and I, too. Yet his will will not be thwarted. Even when Moses or we make grave mistakes, God carries out his intended purpose. This was going exactly according to God's design. In fact, 
Pharaoh would comply with the sovereign plan of God precisely as expressed 1,500 years later by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. There in verse 17, Paul wrote, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And has that not happened throughout all of history? This is the most widely distributed, sold book of all times and continues to be every year. That message to Pharaoh was declared and was demonstrated from that moment on to billions and billions and billions of people. Pharaoh was in the hand of God, yet Pharaoh's heart was hard. Verse 6, so the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they had made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on them, on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. You see, Pharaoh was not a leader full of hot air like many that we see today. His actions backed up his words. Enraged by the challenge to his authority, he commands the hardship of the labor to be ratcheted up, and yet the output quota to be maintained. Now the Hebrew slaves not only have to continue making brick, but also secure a source for straw, which was the main component of the brick. And they had to gather and transport that component back to the place of brick making. Now you can be sure that the quota was already extremely high, even before this harsh mandate from Pharaoh. You bring up the PowerPoint there. This happens to be a relief from the Rechmeyer Chapel in Thebes. Thebes is an Egyptian city located along the banks of the Nile River, about 500 miles south of the Mediterranean Sea. This depicts brick-making in Egypt during the 15th century B.C., which is the time that we're looking at. It is described by one source as showing various stages of the brick-making process. Some are drying water to mix with soil, in order to make mud. Others are forming bricks in wooden molds, then setting them out to dry in the sun. Still others are stacking the bricks and carrying them to a building site. Straw was essential to the whole process because it reinforced the clay and helped each brick stay intact. End quote. Now in the next slide, this is what a similar type of brick making without straw looks like today in the country of Nepal. Can you imagine doing that thousands of times all day? Day after day, and then going to your little hovel where you live. Uh, that's, that's the life of many of these people. And the Hebrew slaves did this all day long. Had to go out and get their own resources now. This is what has happened. This is what the predicament is for them. Egyptian authority, we also see demonstrated here, had a four-tiered chain of command. Look at that, Pharaoh. Of course, he is the king. It all starts with him. And he is not merely a powerful boss. The Egyptian people believed he is God. 
A writer by the name of Frankfurt writes, Egyptians believed that in the person of Pharaoh, a superhuman being had taken charge of the affairs of man. For the creator himself had assumed kingly office on the day of creation. Pharaoh was his descendant and his successor. Whatever Pharaoh says spills down to the Egyptian taskmaster who then passes it on to the Jewish officers or the foremen who are appointed by Egyptians and then they have to do the dirty work of demanding obedience from the slaves. Verse 10, And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. Get yourself straw where you can find it. That's ominous. It's your problem, not ours, says the Egyptian taskmaster. Pharaoh's command is also demanded in the same way Moses first presented the command from Yahweh. Here, Moses had said, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord. Well, the taskmasters, on the other hand, they defy the authority of Yahweh, and they now declare their command with, Thus says Pharaoh, Pharaoh the God. And the result of this is pain at the bottom. Verse 12, So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And their taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And they were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making bricks both yesterday and today as before? People were scattered. That word has a lot of power to it. It means to dash in pieces, to shake up, to shatter, to crush. In another Old Testament passage, scattered describes God's word crushing stone like a sledgehammer. Or his look shattering the mountains. It tells us that this step alone was a crushing blow on the already broken Hebrew slaves. And they were to gather stubble. They were to forage. They must scour the land to find just stubble. And then they were beaten. Naka. It's the same word used to describe how Moses killed that Egyptian taskmaster with a blow. And then they taunted. And they asked, Why have you not fulfilled our demand? Well, it's an unreasonable question, which everybody up and down the chain of command knew. It was impossible. The quota was already at their peak performance, and already they could barely keep up with the Pharaoh's demand, and now they had to at least double their time and scour the countryside for straw and still complete the exhausting work of brickmaking. So what do you do? What do you do when those kind of pressures are placed upon you? Hardships. Who do we turn to? Verse 15. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why are you dealing like this with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make brick. And indeed your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. So who do they go to? They plead to Pharaoh. 
Sadly, but understandably, the Hebrew slave officers grovel before Pharaoh. Now look at the, as they address themselves. Three times, what do they call themselves before Pharaoh? Your servants, your servants, your servants. Ironically, this is at a time when the Lord is preparing to crush that king. But the children of Israel had much to learn about whom they really belonged to and who was in charge. One of the commentators said at the end of chapter 4, the Israelites bowed down to worship their God. But at the first sign of trouble, they ran right back to Pharaoh. They were so used to being in bondage that they could not think of themselves as anything but slaves. Rather than seeking to be free, they went back to renegotiate the terms of their captivity. But Pharaoh says, you're idle. You're idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go. If you want to go, go. Go now and work. For no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Reality hit like a ton of bricks. There is no indication that the foreman consulted Moses and Aaron before going to Pharaoh to register their complaint. There was much they needed to learn. In going to Pharaoh, perhaps they thought, get your own straw initiative was a taskmaster's idea and Pharaoh was unaware, but that would seem very odd because Pharaoh had already placed them under severe hardship well before this latest setback. As one commentator pointed out, they should have done what the Israelites did back at the end of chapter 2. There we read that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. But instead, what do they do now? They hammer the leadership. Verse 20. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now this will be an all too common scene between Moses and the people of Israel. In chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 we will see four different meltdowns when the people of Israel rebel against God's authority in Moses. So Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Moses, can you picture him? In complete frustration, defeat, he goes and cries out to God. One writer said, evidently Moses did not anticipate what effect Pharaoh's refusal and reaction would have upon his own people. Confrontation with Pharaoh so far had provoked both angry resentment of Israel by the Egyptians and of Moses by Israel. This was not the expected scenario. End quote. It was unexpected to Moses. But it, should it have been? 
We go back again to Yahweh's prophetic word in chapter 3, verse 19. God says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. I am sure. He doesn't just say the statement, but he says, I am sure. God says that of this. Another writer stated, his, Moses' best, is seen in his returning to the Lord with his failure. Now listen to this very carefully because we have much to gain by understanding what happens here. Although this is always the right thing to do in such circumstances, it is frequently the most difficult. The easy course is for us to retire into a corner and tell ourselves what a misery life is. How unfair it all is after we have done our best. A letdown. Nothing ever comes right. And so forth. Furthermore, since the most prominent ingredient in our failure is so often guilt over letting the Lord down, the easy course again is to shun His presence. Moses is our example in not taking this easy way, but in getting himself promptly back to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I've tried all of those things when I have failed. Guilt has kept me from God. Shame. It has kept me isolated from the body of Christ and from people. It has made me feel sorry for myself on a self-pity party. Has anybody ever experienced those things in your failures? And, and many, many brothers, as we talk, were, were prone to exactly what this author had talked about. But another wrote this. He said, here is a pristine picture of an honest relationship with God and of the triumph of faith. Not all his problems were solved or all his questions answered, but the crucial action was that Moses returned to where he belonged. He went to the only source of life and light and he returned to the Lord. May we remember that when we were in despair over our failures, which we do often, that we don't sit in the darkness. We, we spring out of that and we return to the Lord immediately. He knew what would happen. He is not surprised that you would fall like that. He knows. So don't stay out there isolated from the only life and light that we have. In closing, do not mess with God's message. Present His truth, present the gospel as accurately as possible to Scripture. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32 reads, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And again, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Dig in, study, meditate on this word of God. It is life. Secondly, when you are under stress or persecution, as you obey the Lord, remember He is sovereign and He is working. I think many of you will find 
as I often look back and I see that these difficult times were the richest times of fellowship with Christ. I was broken. You look at Abraham, or excuse me, at Moses. Again, how did he come? Defeated. He had no power. He had no confidence. Everything he tried was failing. And he comes broken before God. Even though he was obeying, God will work. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, has, has this beautiful statement of fact. But he said to me, Paul writes, speaking of God, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Turn with me to John 15. And Jesus speaks this to his followers here. It's a good word to keep in mind, verses 18 through 27. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Verse 26. But when the helper comes whom I shall send to you from the fathers the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That spirit has come it has come at Pentecost and it has filled all those who trust in him. We have that spirit that he promised. Even though the world hates you, as you are obeying Christ, you have that. And then last, in trial and difficulty such as Moses was facing from the brutal rage from Pharaoh and the disdain of the, and the cursing actually from the people he was trying to help, we ought to turn quickly and fully to Christ Jesus. Speak this to, to several of us. Do not return to old habits and old addictions that will dull and blind you from your Savior. Do not seek old friends that danced you down the path of destruction. Do not pursue the recommendations of the world. Turn to Christ and His Word. Turn to fellowship with His bride, the people of God. Not with the darkness of secret sin and the dull blur 
of the cell phone or computer monitor. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to Christ. There was a time recorded in Scripture when there was a man who cried out to God, but he didn't hear. In fact, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? That was our Savior, Jesus Christ, who took not only the place of death, but also the place of our sin to where he would be alienated from his Father because he would take upon him the sins of all who would trust in him. And he would suffer that way, isolated for the only time in all of eternity, past and future. For but a few brief hours, but an infinity in many ways because he was a son of God. He did that so when we cry out, Isaiah 59 doesn't come true. Where it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it will not hear. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your iniquities have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. By Christ's death on that cross, and his victorious resurrection, when we cry out to our Savior, he hears. When we cry out, he does not turn a dull ear. May we know and love this God and spread this news to a lost and dying world. We, we are more conscious in our culture right now than in a long time of the frailty and the lack of control. As we talk with people on the streets, some are, just throw their hands up. Others curse. Others bewildered, befuddled. They don't know what's going to happen. We know the way, the truth, and the life. And when men come to these kind of points, perhaps their hearts will be more open. I think of so often when things are so good, we frolic, frolic, frolic right into hell itself until it's too late. Perhaps these days will awaken hearts and minds to hear the gospel. But be ready. If you would like, I just offer this, if you would like to have some scriptures that would help you in explaining the gospel, let me know. It's not a silver bullet. It's not bop, up, 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 do it this way. But it's some ways to understand the word of God that you can share with people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, I, I don't know what heaven will be like, but I long to somehow see these in, in 3D living color and, and all the nuances. But you give us all we need in your word. It is sufficient. It is complete. And I thank you for what you've told us in your word about this first encounter. Lord, I pray that we would treasure your word. We, we would hold it carefully and we would study and examine and then share it. Please speak to us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. And Father, I pray that when, when my brothers and sisters and I obey and we are under difficulty, 
that we would consider ourselves linked with you and united with you. And help us to bear that, knowing that you are at work to sanctify us and to show your great glory. And then, Father, I pray, I pray especially for those this morning who, who are far from you, that are struggling to stay near you, which may be all of us at some time. And Lord, that we would, we would spring back to you, we would jump back to you as our Abba Father whenever we fail. And we would not let sin remove us and dull us and keep us from you. Lord, lead us so that our lives would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.